Chapter 38 of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. Chapter 38 After the Battle The Position Reviewed Condition of the Army Reorganization and Supply Visit of the President He Approves McClellan's Course Details of supplies needed and not received. Shoes, clothing, blankets, tents, horses. Dates of receipt of supplies. Plans of advance into Virginia. The night brought with it grave responsibilities. Whether to renew the attack on the 18th or to defer it, even with the risk of the enemy's retirement, was the question before me. After a night of anxious deliberation and a full and careful survey of the situation and condition of our army, the strength and position of the enemy, I concluded that the success of an attack on the 18th was not certain. I am aware of the fact that, under ordinary circumstances, a general is expected to risk a battle if he has a reasonable prospect of success. But at this critical juncture, I should have had a narrow view of the condition of the country had I been willing to hazard another battle with less than an absolute assurance of success. At that moment, Virginia lost. Washington menaced. Maryland invaded. The national cause could afford no risks of defeat. One battle lost, and almost all would have been lost. Lee's army might then have marched as it pleased on Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia, or New York. It could have levied its supplies from a fertile and undevastated country, extorted tribute from wealthy and populous cities, and nowhere east of the Alleghenies was there another organized force able to arrest its march. The following are among the considerations which led me to doubt the certainty of success in attacking before the 19th. The troops were greatly overcome by the fatigue and exhaustion attendant upon the long-continued and severely contested battle of the 17th, together with the long day-and-night marches to which they had been subjected during the previous three days. The supply trains were in the rear, and many of the troops had suffered from hunger. They required rest and refreshment. One division of Sumner's and all of Hooker's corps on the right had, after fighting most valiantly for several hours, been overpowered by numbers, driven back in great disorder, and much scattered, so that they were for the time somewhat demoralized. In Hooker's corps, according to the return made by General Meade commanding, there were but 6,729 men present on the 18th, whereas on the morning of the 22nd there were 13,093 men present for duty in the same corps showing that previous to and during the battle, 6,364 men were separated from their command. General Meade, in an official communication upon this subject, dated September 18, 1862, says, I enclose a field return of the Corps, made this afternoon, which I desire you will lay before the commanding general. I am satisfied the great reduction in the Corps since the recent engagements is not due solely to the casualties of battle, and that a considerable number of men are still in the rear, some having dropped out on the march, and many dispersing and leaving yesterday during the fight. I think the efficiency of the Corps, so far as it goes, good. To resist an attack in our present strong position, I think they may be depended on, and I hope they will perform duty in case we make an attack, though I do not think their morale is as good for an offensive as a defensive movement. One division of Sumner's corps had also been overpowered, and it was a good deal scattered and demoralized. 
it was not deemed by its corps commander in proper condition to attack the enemy vigorously the next day. Some of the new troops on the left, although many of them fought well during the battle and are entitled to great credit, were at the close of the action driven back and their morale impaired. On the morning of the 18th, General Burnside, as before stated, requested me to send him another division to assist in holding his position on the other side of the Antietam, and to enable him to withdraw his corps if he should be attacked by a superior force. A large number of our heaviest and most efficient batteries had consumed all their ammunition on the 16th and 17th, and it was impossible to supply them until late on the following day. Supplies of provisions and forage had to be brought up and issued, and infantry ammunition distributed. Finally, reinforcements to the number of 14,000 men, to say nothing of troops expected from Pennsylvania, had not arrived, but were expected during the day. The 18th was, therefore, spent in collecting the dispersed, giving rest to the fatigued, removing the wounded, burying the dead, and the necessary preparations for a renewal of the battle. Of the reinforcements, Couch's division, marching with commendable rapidity, came up into position at a late hour in the morning. Humphrey's division of new troops, in their anxiety to participate in the battle which was raging when they received the order to march from Frederick at about half-past three p.m. on the 17th, pressed forward during the entire night, and the mass of the division reached the army during the following morning. Having marched more than 23 miles after half-past four o'clock on the preceding afternoon, they were, of course, greatly exhausted and needed rest and refreshment. Large reinforcements expected from Pennsylvania never arrived. During the 18th, orders were given for a renewal of the attack at daylight on the 19th. On the night of the 18th, the enemy, after passing troops in the latter part of the day from the Virginia shore to their position behind Sharpsburg, as seen by our officers, suddenly formed the design of abandoning their position and retreating across the river. As their line was but a short distance from the river, the evacuation presented but little difficulty, and was effected before daylight. About 2,700 of the enemy's dead were, under the direction of Major Davis, Assistant Inspector General, counted and buried upon the battlefield of Antietam. A portion of their dead had been previously buried by them. When our cavalry advance reached the river on the morning of the 19th, it was discovered that nearly all the enemy's forces had crossed into Virginia during the night, their rear escaping under cover of eight batteries placed in strong positions upon the elevated bluffs on the opposite bank. General Porter, commanding the 5th Corps, ordered a detachment from Griffin's and Barnes's brigades, under General Griffin, to cross the river at dark and carry the enemy's batteries. This was gallantly done under the fire of the enemy. Several guns, caissons, etc. were taken, and their supports driven back half a mile. The information obtained during the progress of this affair indicated that the mass of the enemy had retreated on the Charlestown and Martinsburg roads towards Winchester. To verify this, and to ascertain how far the enemy had retired, General Porter was authorized to detach from his corps, on the morning of the 20th, a reconnoitering party in greater force. This detachment crossed the river and advanced about a mile, when it was attacked by a large body of the enemy lying in ambush in the woods, and driven back across the river with considerable loss. This reconnaissance showed that the enemy was still in force on the Virginia bank of the Potomac, prepared to resist our further advance. It was reported to me on the 19th that General Stewart had made his appearance at Williamsport with some 4,000 cavalry and six pieces of artillery, and that 10,000 infantry were marching on the same point from the direction of Winchester. 
I ordered General Couch to march at once with his division and a part of Pleasanton's cavalry, with Franklin's corps within supporting distance, for the purpose of endeavoring to capture this force. General Couch made a prompt and rapid march to Williamsport and attacked the enemy vigorously, but they made their escape across the river. I dispatched the following telegraphic report to the General-in-Chief. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Sharpsburg, September 19, 1862. I have the honor to report that Maryland is entirely freed from the presence of the enemy, who has been driven across the Potomac. No fears need now be entertained for the safety of Pennsylvania. I shall at once occupy Harper's Ferry. G.B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. Major General H.W. Halleck, Commanding U.S. Army. On the following day, September 20th, I received this telegram from General Halleck. We are still left entirely in the dark in regard to your own movements and those of the enemy. This should not be so. You should keep me advised of both, so far as you know them. To which I answered as follows. September 20th. Your telegram of today is received. I telegraphed you yesterday all I knew and had nothing more to inform you of until this evening. Williams's Corps, Banks, occupied Maryland Heights at 1 p.m. today. The rest of the army is near here, except Couch's division, which is at this moment engaged with the enemy in front of Williamsport. The enemy is retiring via Charlestown and Martinsburg on Winchester. He last night reoccupied Williamsport by a small force, but will be out of it by morning. I think he has a force of infantry near Shepherdstown. I regret that you find it necessary to couch every dispatch I have the honor to receive from you in a spirit of fault-finding and that you have not yet found leisure to say one word in commendation of the recent achievements of this army, or even to allude to them. I have abstained from giving the number of guns, colors, small arms, prisoners, etc. captured, until I could do so with some accuracy. I hope by tomorrow evening to be able to give at least an approximate statement. On the same day I telegraphed as follows to General Halleck. September 20th. As the rebel army, now on the Virginia side of the Potomac, must in a great measure be dependent for supplies of ammunition and provisions upon Richmond, I would respectfully suggest that General Banks be directed to send out a cavalry force to cut their supply communication opposite Washington. This would seriously embarrass their operations and will aid this army materially. Maryland Heights were occupied by General Williams's corps on this day, and on the 22nd General Sumner took possession of Harper's Ferry. It will be remembered that at the time I was assigned to command the forces for the defense of the national capital, on the second day of September 1862. The greater part of all the available troops were suffering under the disheartening influences of the serious defeat they had encountered during the brief and unfortunate campaign of General Pope. Their numbers were greatly reduced by casualties, their confidence was much shaken, and they had lost something of that esprit de corps which is indispensable to the efficiency of an army. Moreover, they had left behind, lost, or worn out the greater part of their clothing and camp equipage, which required renewal before they could be in proper condition to take the field again. The intelligence that the enemy was crossing the Potomac into Maryland was received in Washington on the 4th of September, and the Army of the Potomac was again put in motion under my direction on the following day, so that but a very brief interval of time was allowed to reorganize or procure supplies. The sanguinary battles of South Mountain and Antietam, fought by this army a few days afterwards, with the reconnaissances immediately following, resulted in a loss to us of ten general officers, many regimental and company officers, and a large number of enlisted men, 
amounting in the aggregate to 15,220. Two Army Corps had been badly cut up, scattered, and somewhat demoralized in the action of the 17th. In General Sumner's Corps alone, 41 commissioned officers and 819 enlisted men had been killed. Four general officers, 89 other commissioned officers, and 3,708 enlisted men had been wounded, besides 548 missing, making the aggregate loss of this splendid veteran corps in this one battle 5,209. In General Hooker's corps, the casualties of the same engagement amounted to 2,619. The entire army had been greatly exhausted by unavoidable overwork, fatiguing marches, hunger, and want of sleep and rest, previous to the last battle. When the enemy recrossed the Potomac into Virginia, the means of transportation at my disposal were inadequate to furnish a single day's supply of subsistence in advance. Many of the troops were new levies, some of whom had fought like veterans, but the morale of others had been a good deal impaired by those severely contested actions, and they required time to recover, as well as to acquire the necessary drill and discipline. Under these circumstances, I did not feel authorized to cross the river with the main army, over a very deep and difficult ford, in pursuit of the retreating enemy, known to be in strong force on the south bank, and thereby place that stream, which was liable at any time to rise above a fording stage, between my army and its base of supply. I telegraphed on the 22nd to the General-in-Chief as follows. As soon as the exigencies of the service will admit of it, this army should be reorganized. It is absolutely necessary to secure its efficiency that the old skeleton regiments should be filled up at once and officers appointed to supply the numerous existing vacancies. There are instances where captains are commanding regiments and companies are without a single commissioned officer. On the 23rd, the following was telegraphed to the General-in-Chief. From several different sources, I learned that General R.E. Lee is still opposite to my position at Leestown, between Shepherdstown and Martinsburg and that General Jackson is on the Opequin Creek, about three miles from its mouth, both with large force. There are also indications of heavy reinforcements moving towards them from Winchester and Charlestown. I have therefore ordered General Franklin to take position with his corps at the crossroads about one mile northwest of Bakersville, on the Bakersville and Williamsport Road, and General Couch to establish his division near Downsville, leaving sufficient force at Williamsport to watch and guard the ford at that place. The fact that the enemy remaining so long in our front and the indications of an advance of reinforcements seem to indicate that he will give us another battle with all his available force. As I mentioned to you before, our army has been very much reduced by casualties in the recent battles and, in my judgment, all the reinforcements of old troops that can possibly be dispensed with around Washington and other places should be instantly pushed forward by rail to this army. A defeat at this juncture would be ruinous to our cause. I cannot think it possible that the enemy will bring any forces to bear upon Washington till after the question is decided here. But if he should, troops can soon be sent back from this army by rail to reinforce the garrison there. The evidence I have that reinforcements are coming to the rebel army consists in the fact that long columns of dust extending from Winchester to Charlestown, and from Charlestown in this direction, and also troops moving this way, were seen last evening. This is corroborated by citizens. General Sumner, with his corps and Williams's Banks's, occupies Harper's Ferry and the surrounding heights. I think he will be able to hold his position till reinforcements arrive. 
On the 27th, I made the following report. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, September 27th, 1862, 10 a.m. All the information in my possession goes to prove that the main body of the enemy is concentrated not far from Martinsburg with some troops at Charlestown, not many at Winchester. Their movements of late have been an extension towards our right and beyond it. They are receiving reinforcements in Winchester, mainly. I think of conscripts, perhaps entirely so. This army is not now in condition to undertake another campaign, nor to bring on another battle, unless great advantages are offered by some mistake of the enemy, or pressing military exigencies render it necessary. We are greatly deficient in officers. Many of the old regiments are reduced to mere skeletons. The new regiments need instruction. Not a day should be lost in filling the old regiments, our main dependence, and in supplying vacancies among the officers by promotion. My present purpose is to hold the army about as it is now, rendering Harper's Ferry secure and watching the river closely, intending to attack the enemy should he attempt to cross to this side. Our possession of Harper's Ferry gives us the great advantage of a secure debauch, but we cannot avail ourselves of it until the railroad bridge is finished, because we cannot otherwise supply a greater number of troops than we now have on the Virginia side at that point. When the river rises so that the enemy cannot cross in force, I propose concentrating the army somewhere near Harper's Ferry, and then acting according to circumstances. Viz. moving on Winchester, if from the position and attitude of the enemy we are likely to gain a great advantage by doing so, or else devoting a reasonable time to the organization of the army and instruction of the new troops, preparatory to an advance on whatever line may be determined. In any event, I regard it as absolutely necessary to send new regiments at once to the old corps for purposes of instruction, and that the old regiments be filled at once. I have no fears as to an attack on Washington by the line of Manassas. Holding Harper's Ferry, as I do, they will not run the risk of an attack on their flank and rear while they have the garrison of Washington in their front. I rather apprehend a renewal of the attempt in Maryland, should the river remain low for a great length of time, and should they receive considerable addition to their force. I would be glad to have Peck's division as soon as possible. I am surprised that Sigel's men should have been sent to western Virginia without my knowledge. The last I heard from you on the subject was that they were at my disposition. In the last battles, the enemy was undoubtedly greatly superior to us in number, and it was only by very hard fighting that we gained the advantage we did. As it was, the result was, at one period, very doubtful, and we had all we could do to win the day. If the enemy receives considerable reinforcements, and we none, it is possible that I may have too much on my hands in the next battle. My own view of the proper policy to be pursued is to retain in Washington merely the force necessary to garrison it, and to send everything else available to reinforce this army. The railways give us the means of promptly reinforcing Washington, should it become necessary. If I am reinforced as I ask, and am allowed to take my own course, I will hold myself responsible for the safety of Washington. Several persons recently from Richmond say that there are no troops there except conscripts, and they few in number. I hope to give you details as to late battles by this evening. I am about starting again for Harpers Ferry. G.B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. Major General Halleck, General-in-Chief Washington. The work of reorganizing, drilling, and supplying the Army I began at the earliest moment. The different corps were stationed along the river in the best positions to cover and guard the fords. The great extent of the riverfront from near Washington to Cumberland, some 150 miles, 
together with the line of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, was to be carefully watched and guarded to prevent, if possible, the enemy's raids. Reconnaissances upon the Virginia side of the river for the purpose of learning the enemy's positions and movements were made frequently, so that our cavalry, which from the time we left Washington had performed the most laborious service, and had from the commencement been deficient in numbers, was found totally inadequate to the requirements of the army. This overwork had broken down the greater part of the horses, disease had appeared among them, and but a very small portion of our original cavalry force was fit for service. To such an extent had this arm become reduced that when General Stuart made his raid into Pennsylvania on the 11th of October with 2,000 men, I could only mount 800 men to follow him. Harper's Ferry was occupied on the 22nd, and in order to prevent a catastrophe similar to the one which had happened to Colonel Miles, I immediately ordered Maryland, Bolivar, and Loudoun Heights to be strongly fortified. This was done as far as the time and means at our disposal permitted. The main army of the enemy during this time remained in the vicinity of Martinsburg and Bunker Hill, and occupied itself in drafting and coercing every able-bodied citizen into the ranks, forcibly taking their property where it was not voluntarily offered, burning bridges, and destroying railroads. On the first day of October, His Excellency the President honored the Army of the Potomac with a visit, and remained several days, during which he went through the different encampments, reviewed the troops, and went over the battlefields of South Mountain and Antietam. I had the opportunity during this visit to describe to him the operations of the Army since the time it left Washington, and gave him my reasons for not following the enemy after he crossed the Potomac. He was accompanied by General McClernand, John W. Garrett, the Secretary of State of Illinois, and others whom I have forgotten. During the visit, we had many and long consultations alone. I urged him to follow a conservative course, and supposed from the tenor of his conversation that he would do so. He more than once assured me that he was fully satisfied with my whole course from the beginning, that the only fault he could possibly find was that I was perhaps too prone to be sure that everything was ready before acting, but that my actions were all right when I started. I said to him that I thought a few experiments with those who acted before they were ready would probably convince him that in the end I consumed less time than they did. He told me that he regarded me as the only general in the service capable of organizing and commanding a large army, and that he would stand by me. We parted on the field of South Mountain, whither I had accompanied him. He said there that he did not see how we ever gained that field, and that he was sure that, if I had defended it, Lee could never have carried it. We spent some time on the battlefield and conversed fully on the state of affairs. He told me that he was entirely satisfied with me and with all that I had done, that he would stand by me against all comers, that he wished me to continue my preparations for a new campaign, not to stir an inch until fully ready, and when ready, to do what I thought best. He repeated that he was entirely satisfied with me, that I should be let alone, that he would stand by me. I have no doubt that he meant exactly what he said. He parted from me with the utmost cordiality. We never met again on this earth. He had hardly reached Washington before Cox's division was taken from me and the order of October 6th reached me, a singular commentary on the uncertainty of human affairs. On the 5th of October, the division of General Cox, about 5,000 men, was ordered from my command to Western Virginia. On the 7th of October, I received the following telegram from General Halleck. 
October 6th. I am instructed to telegraph you as follows. The President directs that you cross the Potomac and give battle to the enemy or drive him south. Your army must move now while the roads are good. If you cross the river between the enemy and Washington and cover the latter by your operation, you can be reinforced with 30,000 men. If you move up the valley of the Shenandoah, not more than 12,000 or 15,000 can be sent to you. The President advises the interior line between Washington and the enemy, but does not order it. He is very desirous that your army move as soon as possible. You will immediately report what line you adopt and when you intend to cross the river, also to what point the reinforcements are to be sent. It is necessary that the plan of your operations be positively determined on before orders are given for building bridges and repairing railroads. I am directed to add that the Secretary of War and the General-in-Chief fully concur with the President in these instructions. On the 10th of October, Stuart crossed the river at McCoy's Ferry with 2,000 cavalry and a battery of horse artillery on his raid into Maryland and Pennsylvania, making it necessary to use all our cavalry against him. This exhausting service completely broke down nearly all of our cavalry horses and rendered a remount absolutely indispensable before we could advance on the enemy. At the time I received the order of October 6th to cross the river and attack the enemy, the army was wholly deficient in cavalry, and a large part of our troops were in want of shoes, blankets, and other indispensable articles of clothing, notwithstanding all the efforts that had been made since the Battle of Antietam, and even prior to that date, to refit the army with clothing as well as horses. I at once consulted with Colonel Ingalls, the chief quartermaster, who believed that the necessary articles could be supplied in about three days. Orders were immediately issued to the different commanders, who had not already sent in their requisitions to do so at once, and all the necessary steps were forthwith taken by me to ensure a prompt delivery of the supplies. The requisitions were forwarded to the proper department at Washington, and I expected that the articles would reach our depots during the three days specified. But day after day elapsed, and only a small portion of the clothing arrived. Corps commanders, upon receiving notice from the quartermasters that they might expect to receive their supplies at certain dates, sent the trains for them, which, after waiting, were compelled to return empty. Several instances occurred where the trains went back and forth from the camps to the depots as often as four or five different times, without receiving their supplies. And I was informed by one corps commander that his wagon train had traveled over 150 miles to and from the depots, before he succeeded in obtaining his clothing. The Corps of General Franklin did not get its clothing until after it had crossed the Potomac and was moving into Virginia. General Reynolds' Corps was delayed a day at Berlin to complete its supplies, and General Porter only completed his on reaching the vicinity of Harper's Ferry. I made every exertion in my power, and my quartermasters did the same, to have these supplies hurried forward rapidly and I was repeatedly told that they had filled the requisitions at Washington, and that the supplies had been forwarded. But they did not come to us, and of course were inaccessible to the army. I did not fail to make frequent representation of this condition of things to the General-in-Chief, and it appears that he referred the matter to the Quartermaster General, who constantly replied that the supplies had been promptly ordered. Notwithstanding this, they did not reach our depots. The following extracts are from telegrams upon this subject. To General Halleck, October 11th. We have been making every effort to get supplies of clothing for this army, and Colonel Ingalls has received advices that it has been forwarded by railroad. 
but owing to bad management on the roads, or from some other cause, it comes in very slowly, and it will take a much longer time than was anticipated to get articles that are absolutely indispensable to the Army, unless the railroad managers forward supplies more rapidly. To General Halleck, October 11th. I am compelled again to call your attention to the great efficiency of shoes and other indispensable articles of clothing that still exists in some of the corps in this army. Upon the assurances of the chief quartermaster, who based his calculation upon information received from Washington, that clothing would be forwarded at certain times, corps commanders sent their wagons to Hagerstown and Harper's Ferry for it. It did not arrive as promised and has not yet arrived. Unless some measures are taken to ensure the prompt forwarding of these supplies, there will necessarily be a corresponding delay in getting the army ready to move, as the men cannot march without shoes. Everything has been done that can be done at these headquarters to accomplish the desired result. To General Halleck, October 15th, I am using every possible exertion to get this army ready to move. It was only yesterday that a part of our shoes and clothing arrived at Hagerstown. It is being issued to the troops as rapidly as possible. To Colonel Ingalls, October 15th. General Franklin reports that there is by no means as much clothing as was called for at Hagerstown. I think, therefore, you had better have additional supplies, especially of shoes, forwarded to Harper's Ferry as soon as possible. To Colonel Ingalls, October 16th. General J.F. Reynolds just telegraphs as follows. My quartermaster reports that there are no shoes, tents, blankets, or knapsacks at Hagerstown. He was able to procure only a complete supply of overcoats and pants, with a few socks, drawers, and coats. This leaves many of the men yet without a shoe. My requisitions call for 5,255 pairs of shoes. Please push the shoes and stockings up to Harper's Ferry as fast as possible. From General Sumner, October 7th. I have given orders upon orders about the clothing, but my officers can get nothing from Washington, and some staff officers there had the impudence to say that I had no right to sign requisitions. From Colonel Ingalls, October 9th. You did right in sending clothing to Harper's Ferry. You will not be able to send too much or too quickly. We want blankets, shoes, canteens, etc. very much. From Colonel Ingalls, the quartermaster in Philadelphia, October 10th. Shipments to Hagerstown must be made direct through to avoid the contemptible delays at Harrisburg. If Colonel Crossman was ordered to send clothing, I hope he has sent it, for the suffering and impatience are excessive. From Colonel Ingalls, October 13th. Has the clothing arrived yet? If not, do you know where it is? What clothing was taken by the rebels at Chambersburg? Did they capture any property that was en route to you? Have we not got clothing at Harrisburg? Send an agent over the road to obtain information and hurry up the supplies. Reply at once. From General Halleck, October 13th. Your telegram in regard to supplies has been referred to the Quartermaster General, and he replies that everything asked for had been sent or ordered. The movement of your reinforcements by railroads has probably delayed the transportation of some portion of them. It is difficult to supply the waste of horses. From F. Lowry, Captain and Quartermaster, October 15th. I have just returned from Hagerstown, where I have been for the clothing for the Corps. There was nothing there but overcoats, trousers, and a few uniform coats and socks. There were not any shoes, blankets, shirts, or shelter tents. Will you please tell me where and when the balance can be had? 
Shall I send the Harper's Ferry for them tomorrow? The Corps surgeon has just made a requisition for 45 hospital tents. There are none at Hagerstown. Will you please inform me if I can get them at Harper's Ferry? From Assistant Quartermaster G.W. Weeks, October 15th. I want at least 10,000 suits of clothing in addition to what I've received. It should be here now. From A. Bliss, Captain and Assistant Quartermaster, October 22nd. We have booties, 12,000. Greatcoats, 4,000. Drawers and shirts are gone. Blankets and stockings nearly so. 15,000 each of these four articles are wanted. From Colonel Ingalls, October 24th. Please send to Captain Bliss at Harper's Ferry 10,000 blankets, 12,000 caps, 5,000 overcoats, 10,000 pairs booties, 2,000 pairs artillery and cavalry boots, 15,000 pairs stockings, 15,000 drawers, and 15,000 pants. The clothing arrives slowly. Can it not be hurried along faster? May I ask you to obtain authority for this shipment? From Captain Weeks, October 30th. Clothing has arrived this morning, none taken by rebels. Shall I supply Franklin and retain portions for Porter and Reynolds until called for? End of Part 1 of Chapter 38